0: I am so honored today that my guest is Mathieu Ricard. Mathieu is an icon on the global stage of happiness and one of the most influential happiness champions alive today. He was born in France in 1946 to a mother that is a well-known French artist and a father that is a renowned French philosopher. He went on to study to become a scientist but once he finished his PhD degree in cell genetics, he moved to become a Buddhist monk, one of the most renowned around the world because he was called the world's happiest man after 45 years of practice. Mathieu is also an author, a translator, and a photographer, and his work has been celebrated in the World Economic Forum at Davos and Forums of the United Nations and his TED talk on happiness has been viewed by over 7 million people. What a pleasure to have such an amazing teacher with us today. Mathieu, thank you so much for being with me today. Hello. Hello, Mathieu.
1: Hi. Hi.
0: There you are.
1: I'm inside because my it's 40 Celsius here. Is it? And I have my 97-year-old mother, not far, and sometimes she likes to sing and all kinds of things. <laughs> okay, that's great. So I hope it's okay. I took as much as distance as I could.
0: Not really. We would love to hear her sing on the podcast. I think that would be wonderful. This is about happiness and compassion. So what is better than you, yes. you know, taking care of your mother who's singing? This is like it, honestly.
1: Yeah, she sings the Ave Maria of Schubert. She sings some Buddhist mantra. It's unpredictable.
0: I'm a big fan to start. I aspire to take a path that's similar to yours, but and it's part of what I want to talk to you about is uh, a businessman. So I'm so engaged. Even in my approach to spreading happiness and compassion, I take a bit of a business approach. So I'm very engaged in the modern world. I'm constantly somewhere. And recently, I've been really trying very hard to find silence and space is what I call it. This is the year of silence and space for me.
1: Yes. Well, I live a little bit of that life unexpectedly. You know, I was 25 years completely quiet in the Himalayas. Then I did this book with my father, 1997. And that was followed by 20 years of uh, clowning around like anything. Ending up in weird places like Davos Economic Forum and the UN and all that. And now I sort of got out of that circus. Mm. <laughs> I know what it is to be always on the move. So I decided I don't want to die in the airport, but rather in the Hermitage. So,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I managed to set things properly for the Humanitarian Foundation that I the projects that we started. And then that was my only concern about you know, disappearing in the woods. And now it's, I think it's more or less on track. I can to do a graceful exit. And I hope it will continue to do good because we help 20,000 people every year. Oh, do you? So hear? the main thing is, you know, all the activities that used to be you know, bringing a lot of uh, help for the projects. Of course, the fact that I'm not running wrong anymore is, uh, makes it more challenging, including the conference and the uh, all these things yeah but anyway there's a good team and they are doing their best and uh, so far we are still managing to keep afloat so it's okay
0: this podcast is my excuse to meet the most wonderful hearts and some of the best minds in the world and it's okay. simply my yeah, I
1: hope help. you get better than me. <laughs> oh
0: <laughs> man you have no idea how much you mean to me actually it's a to me, it's I learn every one of those conversations. I think this is why it's successful. It goes to thousands and thousands of people because I'm very, very curious to learn from you. So I lost my wonderful son, Ali, around six years ago. Yes. Yeah. I, and Ali, uh, Ali was sort of my... I don't want to say my teacher, but he definitely really influenced my views on life. He had that very unusual, very peaceful approach to everything. And I'm I'm like that in nature, but then in practice, when I engaged in life, I started to learn to be competitive and a business executive and a control freak and so on. But I always had that spiritual path in my heart. And I really invested heavily, I think, of everything I invested in my life. It was my... Connection to myself, my spiritual path was always my priority. Still today. Then, then when Ali left, I sort of got a calling. Okay, and that calling was to really spread what he taught me to the rest of the world. And so I ended up in that place where I wrote Soul for Happy, and then Soul for Happy became a, an international bestseller. It translated into thirty-one languages. And with it, I had that simple mission of 10 million happy. I was trying to reach 10 million people with it, which the internet, yeah, it was the internet just magnified it so much that we ended up reaching 10 million in eight weeks or something.
1: Sounds like, like planting 10 million trees. Or, oh, you have no or, idea. Uh,
0: no, no, it really is, because that was absolutely my philosophy. My philosophy was. Through six degrees of separation, 10 million could reach the entire universe, right? Sure, sure. And so, anyway, it, my life flipped upside down. I quit Google. I've dedicated a big part of my last three years to that mission.
1: Also, sounds like the happy fellow at Google wanting to put meditation in every single.
0: You remember that? Yes, yeah, so yeah. He's so, a
1: good friend of mine. My...
0: <laughs> so, I'm like the least informed, and it's probably so much better if I can find you and talk to you and learn from you. And then my listeners would learn from our conversation. And so this is what slow-mo is about. What slow-mo is about is I follow you. You'll be amazed how much I've studied your path, your life, your work, your book, and so on. And I want to ask you a few questions. I start with enormous gratitude that you dedicate your time I know you're addicted to silence and space. You know, you're addicted to finding your own place of meditation. You've spent five years in solitary meditation. When I ask, you're always somewhere away from the city life. But it doesn't seem that the beginning of your life was like that. You were born in France. I understand that 1972, it was when you decided to actually become a monk. And at that time, you had just finished a PhD in cell genetics. This is like You're serious about science, about engaging in life, getting a PhD, and then you decide to disappear, if you want, from this world and appear in a new world. Why? (laughs) Why would anyone do that?
1: But you see, when things are ripe, you know, if you have a fruit, you know, like an apple or something, and if it's green, you can pull it very hard and you break the branch and in any case, it's not edible when it's right, you just touch it and it falls in your hand. So when something is mature and ready, it doesn't take any effort. It's actually uh, what will be difficult is not to go to the next step. Or it's like if you reach on the mountain pass after having climbed somewhere, then the mountain pass is quite short. You know, there's just the inflection point. And then you discover a wonderful new valley and then you just stroll down the hill in the new valley. So if I look retrospectively, of course, well, as a teenager, it was not as clear in my mind. But nevertheless, I remember that someone asked me if I had any role model in life. And surprisingly enough, you know, I had met people who are considered to be quite special in their own field. Great philosophers, musicians. I met Stravinsky when I was 16 years old. It's pure stroke of luck, you know, a friend of mine who was a journalist for the New York Times, friend of my father. She was interviewing him. She knew I was a passionate of plastic and music, so she invited me for lunch with Stravinsky. So anyway, a kind of a dream. And then I, when I entered Pasteur Institute, it was a very small lab, but there was three Nobel Prize. Then I had an uncle who was a great explorer, run, run the world solo on the sailboat without engine from 1949 to 52. So he knew all kinds of incredible people. My mother is a painter. She's 97 now, so all the artists of the Parisian life we knew. So I could look everywhere and find people who were extremely good at what they were doing, but what was puzzling is that there was no obvious correlation between that and being a happy person, an unhappy person, a generous person, a stingy person, a person filled with animosity, or a very, very kind person. You can find the same distribution among 100 gardeners, 100 uh, of all walks of life, philosophers, scientists, musicians, anything. So there was no correlation. You know, like look at Bobby Fischer. I used to play chess, you know, one of the greatest genius. But who wants to be Bobby Fischer? He was totally disturbed, schizophrenic and all that. I mean, you will never want to be him. So it was puzzling, but I was not formulating that way. You know, like anyone, I remember with a, I met another of my colleague at Pasteur Institute, where I entered when I was 20. And we discussed he became a Buddhist too. And he said, well, at that time, we knew what we didn't want in life. I mean, a boring life, meaningless, but we didn't really know what we really, really wanted. It was not clear. Part was not clear. Role models were not there. So then uh, when I was 20, just before entering Pasteur Institute to start my PhD, I saw some documentaries made by a friend of my mother on all the great masters, Tibetan masters who had fled Chinese invasion of Tibet and were at sought refuge in India on the Himalayan side of India. There, suddenly, boom, You know, there was 20 Socrates, 20 St. Francis of Assisi, whoever you think you would have loved to meet. <laughs> exactly. alive. <laughs> My. So I thought, I'm going there. No way. So I went there. I spoke hardly any English because I learned classical Greek, Latin, and German at school, my father said, you will always learn English later, which happened. But I forgot the other ones. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> so then suddenly, in Darjeeling, on June 1967, I met a great master called Kangyu Rinpoche, And I knew nothing about Buddhism, just a little bit. I mean, I was reading some books on spirituality, but not much of consequence, nothing to practice. And then suddenly, I saw someone who was the living example of what I could imagine perfection to be. And I thought, well, if someone can become like that, even I managed to become 100 of the fundamental basic human qualities of that person. And if possible, some of his spiritual insight and wisdom and compassion, all the qualities I could think of, wow, that will be worth <laughs> devoting my life to. So, of course, the first year, again, it was not so obvious. It was so overwhelming. The first few weeks I spent there in Darjeeling in North Bengal, and uh, it was almost too much. But when I came back to France after three months, it was obvious that that was it. You know, (laughs) The direction was set. So then I went back six or seven times every summer, once even in the winter for 10 days, just to see him and be with him. And as time passed, I realized that when I was in Darjeeling with my teacher, I forgot completely about Parisian Life and Pasteur Institute. And when I was in Pasteur Institute, it was always coming in my mind as an inspiration. Further, you know, when I finished my PhD, my boss, Francois Jacob, he was one who discovered the, the way of the genes translate into proteins through the genetic code and the transcription and all that with the RNA messenger. Anyway, he wanted to, me to go for a postdoc somewhere in the US. Actually, I I don't remember where he wanted to send me. I wish I knew now. (laughs) But anyway, I told him, you know, gently, and uh, I finished all my papers, completed my PhD, everything was fine. Just I was going to change anyway. I said, look, I think I'm going to do my postdoc in the Himalayas. He sort of saw that coming. Uh, It was a little bit more surprising to my father, who, uh, as he said, every philosopher dreams to have his son being a scientist. So, but afterwards, he saw that I was flourishing there, and he started worrying that I was completely drifted in the strange path. So anyway, so then the serious thing started in 72, where I started to practice, to do retreats, to be with my teacher. When he passed away, I spent another 13 years with another great teacher called Digo Kensei Then I became his attendant, so I was spend day and night with him, serving him and receiving all these teachings. I went to Tibet with him when he went back after 30 years of exile. So in the end, basically I spent half a century in the Himalayas, near these great teachers. And I was living on hardly anything, a shoestring. My first seven years in Darjeeling, the Hermitage was like three meters by three and I uh, had no electricity, no running water. Uh, no heating at two, you know, 6,000 feet. It was most happiest year in my life. But then suddenly in 1997, someone suggested that I do a book of dialogue with my father, who is a well-known French philosopher, Jean-François Revel. So we did this moment philosopher, and I thought that was the first and last for my adventures in writing books and all that. And I was a bit worried that it's going to be some kind of disturbance. So I didn't know well enough that it would be 20 years of, you know, whirlpool and milestone and it was triggered by that. So either it was the beginning of my travel or the beginning of a kind of another opportunity to share. I did a dear to my heart that I that distilled the wisdom that I received from my teacher the best I could. So anyway, it was a different thing. I started humanitarian projects. Now they are florists. So like that. So for me, it was a beautiful adventure, but at no place I felt I was slamming doors, breaking up. It was more like, again, passing from one mountain pass to another valley to yet another valley. And each one is more beautiful than the former one. And at least I feel extremely fortunate that I did that early enough, that I was so fortunate to be with those great masters. And even though I'm quite lazy and and stupid, (laughs) but At least, you know, incredibly fortunate life. And if I die, I would, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Okay, I I won't edit that last bit of you saying lazy and stupid because we don't see you that way at, at all. We see you as another amazing teacher as well. But I think the part that puzzles me and I think really, really needs to get in the heart of a lot of people is you look at the time when you are an international best selling author invited to Davos on the stages everywhere. And you call that madness. And then you look at the time where you're in a three by three hermitage and you're in no running water, no, no real food. And you say, these are the happiest days of my life. Now, we need an explanation from you on in that because, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> because that's not how everyone sees the world, is
1: it? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I got some nasty remarks sometimes. You say, people, wait, good for you. You know, we have to work day and night for making a living. <laughs> uh-huh. It's not that I live in luxury in a resort in the Himalaya with a swimming pool. You know, it's too sloppy anyway. And uh, it's a choice. You know, I was living really living on $50 a month, which was fine for the way of life I was living. So, I mean, yes, it's not everyone can just decide suddenly they will go off to the Himalayas like that. But it's kind of, uh, in a way, I sort of decided to do that. No, know, I didn't even think. I mean, retrospectively, I think it was crazy at 26 years old to go without any foreseeable source of income for the next, at the end of my life. And nothing left on the side except, you know, a few thousand something to keep going on for living that. So it was really a happy choice. But anyway, so I think the reason is that uh, I felt that every single moment was meaningful, that what I was uh, learning from my teacher you know, before I used to study cell division of bacteria. It's very interesting because not just how bacteria divide, but it's all the, the entangling, the, the heart of the you know cellular genetics and microbiology. And it was a fascinating time where they were discovering all the way the DNA is transcribed and everything. So, yes, it was amazing. But at the same time, I felt that near my teacher to entangle all the in an outer mechanism of happiness and suffering, well, that meant there was more gratifying to me. And I thought this adventure, I could see me doing that the rest of my life without any hesitation and with renewed enthusiasm. So to do something that may sound difficult or unappealing or austere, you need to have an extreme enthusiasm for what you see as where you are going, the result, the benefit of doing so. Which is precisely, you spoke about addicted, I forgot to what, but what we are usually addicted is the cause of suffering. Uh, We're keeping our hand in the fire and want not to be burned, so it doesn't work. So you have to, you know, see what contributes to genuine flourishing and what constantly undermines, or even sometimes, it's not even we actually seeking happiness, but somehow No, when I did the book on happiness, in France, intellectuals don't like happiness. (laughs) I know the reason is they are quite unhappy, and then the thing on top of that, if you tell us we must be happy, what it is unfair. Yeah, they call it the dirty works of happiness. (laughs) And uh, so, but in a way, they say there are so many more important things like justice and the pursuit of this and that. So, well, that's their way of finding fulfillment. So they understand happy, maybe happiness as a perpetual euphoria. That's actually the title of one of my sort of friends, Pascal Bruckner who wrote a book and who said my book was like the dirty works of happiness, but we became friends later on. Because perpetual euphoria is this kind of phantasmagory uh, that uh, you know, use that kind of toothbrush and then you will be happy. Uh, and all these uh, these fallacies of the modern world, pretending that they will make you happy in five lessons in three weeks, in three points yeah. and with the easy thing, and you just have to do that to eat bio food and all this time, and you'll be always euphoric. So that's, of course, scanned canned happiness. You know, it's happiness. in the, It doesn't work, and it's, and so it's completely misplaced. It thinks that uh, happiness is a kind of endless succession of pleasant sensation, which is, of course, a recipe for exhaustion, not for happiness. So because of that, I was totally puzzled, and I thought, well, it's interesting to look deeper into that. So, I mean, yes, you have to be passionate about something because you see the benefit for yourself and for others.
0: So this is really counterintuitive because we humans, we have needs too, right? So to become a monk is to give up on almost everything that we are told in the modern world is human, right? So you're giving up on the fancy dinners, you're giving up on the wealth, on the title, on the car, on the, right? And somehow, because of the people I know, and I'm one of them, I'm an aspiring one of them, I find that the less we have, the happier we become. The less attached we are, the less attached we are to having, the happier we become.
1: I know this, uh, the puzzling thing is that people look for happiness where it's not. And that's the big problem. You know, I started, when I wrote the book on happiness, I didn't mean to write the book on happiness at all. Simply... The Heart of Happiness of the Dalai Lama came out in France. I love that book. And I oh was totally God. puzzled by the, I mean, it was a popular book, but all the so-called intellectuals, they're welcoming with utter contempt. And I thought, okay, here are very intelligent people. They are very learned. They are smart. And of course, Dalai Lama is uh, amazingly insightful and a lot of wisdom and kindness. So how come? So I thought maybe they don't speak of the same thing. And so I start to do a little more research, and then I almost drew two columns, one with one definition of happiness. Happiness is in the present moment. And then I would find equally respectable thinkers or philosophers over 2,000 years who said, oh, happiness is all about imagining the future and being in the past. Or happiness is, uh, well, you could find 20 definitions and exactly the opposite. Yeah. So if, as Aristotle said, Happiness is the only goal that we pursue for itself, not as a means for something else. And Dalai Lama says happiness is kind of the goal of life. If it that's the case, then if we follow Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, who said that people, all the thinkers have left the definition of happiness in the vague so that everyone could define it in his or her own term. So that's kind of idea that's predominating in many French intellectual culture. But if it has the goal of goals, whether you call it pursuit of justice, pursuit of this or that, which is basically we don't wake up in the morning thinking May I suffer the whole day and if possible my whole life. So that we agree on that. So what, what should we do and not do to achieve that? Which is another way of putting, that somehow we all want something better in our life, whether it's justice, whether it's uh, social equality, whether it's wealth and so forth. So what are the conditions that will bring a real, lasting, profound sense of fulfillment and plenitude. So it's quite clear, and then you just have to look around, that if you bet on wealth, physical beauty and youth, on social rank, on power, it's like hoping to win the lottery because it's putting everything, uh, hope and fear, in the outer condition. And it takes no rocket science to find out that our control on outer condition is very limited. The universe is not a mail-order catalog for our desires and fancies. And anyway, if if there is such a catalog, there are 7 billion beings ordering in that, their own happiness, it's not going to work. And then it's a, so our control is limited. It's transitory, ephemeral, it's changing and permanent all the time. And it's illusory. You think you are in... Everything, you're surfing on the best possible situation, and next day you are bankrupt, your wife goes, you get sick, and so forth. So those are kind of uh, luring our mind. And anyway, when you get them, you get the Ferrari, and you are so mad worried that someone is going to scratch it, you know? So it just doesn't work. So then my friend Daniel Gilbert said, well, that's why the pursuit of happiness is, uh, makes you happy. When you get it, and then you it's not the goal itself. And I, t- I mentioned to him, Well, it's because you don't set the goal in the right place. So when you get the fairy, you get well, that's all. I'm not happy. So what's wrong with that? And when you see people who have everything you describe, they are famous, they are beautiful, they are healthy, they are you know living in a perfect situation, and then this, you heard, that they are completely. They got a nervous breakdown and got depression, and so he said, what's wrong with this guy if I had all that? And then I would be happy, of course. And I I remember an anecdote. I was with uh, a young lama who is now the abbot of my monastery. He's the grandson of my teacher. We were invited to Tahiti, so there was no many lamas in Tahiti. When we arrived, we were on TV at night. They They found a red snake in Tahiti, and two lamas arrived. So the big. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we were hosted in the house that used to be that of Gauguin, you know, the French painter. Here we were sitting at sunset with a swimming pool lit from within, with palm trees and frigate birds flying, at this magnificent scene. And I told him, "Look, now we are supposed to be happy, right? Everything is there." And I we. Would, thought about that and we discussed, okay, what is it about that? Is it the swimming pool? So now if we double the length of the swimming pool, <laughs> is our happiness going to increase? Yeah. So we start laughing, you know, the, all this didn't make sense. And so if it all depends on outer circumstances, it doesn't work. Then the next day we another wonderful experience. You know, all these places looks very nice on postcard, but it's terribly hot and humid. So next day we were trying to cope with <laughs> that humidity and heat. And we sat under a tree, and from that tree came down a fine drizzle, like you know when you do with this mist that you send on your face, and give you two seconds of relief. And so we were, wow, you know. And my Zamzami pochay said, oh, even the trees are air conditioned here. Then someone came and he said, he said, you know, those are pissing flies. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thousands of flies drinking the sap and then you know sending their sort of. Dejection okay. down there. So uh, perception immediately change from a beautiful one to something. whoo, what are we doing here? Those <laughs> that outer condition, you can't rely one second in them. And pleasures turns into neutral feeling, aversion to you know, the most beautiful music. Okay. Three times if you are a fan, but 24 hours is a torture. So like most of pleasure based on sensation change into neutral and aversion depending on the quantity. It's like consume itself. You can feel great pleasure while everybody is suffering, while very, very selfish, or while being even with, filled with animosity. So it's a different thing. Nothing wrong with pleasure. Taking a hot shower after walking in the snow is wonderful, but it's a different continuum. And as you use it, it uh, tends to exhaust itself. While happiness as a way of being has nothing to do with sensation. You know, you can have this Happiness is a way of being even in sadness. If you lose someone dear like you did, you can have the meaning of life, the compassion, you can have inner freedom, you can have this wisdom, this inner space that is vast enough to basically give space to all the events up some dance of life and remain in a state of freedom and serenity and vastness. And that's not incompatible with being sad for the right reason. You don't fall into despair, you're just sad. So Nobody will say that sadness is compatible with pleasure, for instance, it's not a pleasant experience. So it's a different continuum. So that's why you need to really identify what makes, and also the more you cultivate it, unlike pleasure, the more it tends to sort of, uh, you become experienced in it. So then at the end, that way of being, that state of mind at your baseline, give you, you build up to cultivating this the inner resources to deal with the abundance of life in a way that you are not so destabilized, that you are not so vulnerable. And one great advantage of that, if you are very vulnerable, you tend to be overprotective. Me, 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 what's going to happen? Is it going to bring me pleasure or is it a threat to my status quo? So you're very. the world can arise as an enemy or as an object of furthering your immediate interest or something like that. While If you uh, feel that you are perfectly fine within, suddenly look around and open to others and ready for caring for others instead of being obsessed with this exacerbated feeling of self-centeredness. So that's an incredible freedom.
0: Yeah, to be able to be taking life with whatever comes, not dependent on that external environment to find your inner peace, I call that the superpower of all superpowers. This is really, this is really being Superman. Because the definition of Superman is that you know the world cannot hurt me. If you want, right? I can find that. It's more inner like strength.
1: freedom. says. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. There you go.
1: Superman is sort of very self-centered. Still, I mean, like me, I'm the Superman.
0: I'm the champion. Uh, so here is the question: Why do we need to go as far as being monks? be able to find that
1: by the way i didn't become monk right away uh, uh-huh. i didn't correct that but for many years i just did as a you know as i am and a practitioner who studied with my teacher uh for many years till i was 30 and then when i was 30 you know i thought well it's just i'm living almost like a monk it's much simpler so it's absolutely not necessary okay this is just a personal choice that's important to hear huh yes because, you see, the reason is I really wanted to spend this kind of life, to be able to go and retreat, to disappear, to be with my teacher. I would have never been, you know, seven years my first teacher, 13 years with my second teacher if I had the responsibility of a family. So, you know, you have wife and children and say, bye-bye, by the way, I'm coming back in three years. I wish you well. You know, it doesn't work. I mean, it's incompatible with compassion to start with. Uh-huh. And, you know, of course, I didn't father any children, but I'm taking care of 30,000 children now, right? to our projects. And wonderful. And uh, in our monastery, we have young children and I befriend them all the time and uh, take care. So I'm totally fine. <laughs> I don't miss that. I think it's a choice and that's a definite choice and not everyone can do that. But definitely, this is absolutely not a must. It's simply a way to decide at some point that's all you want to do. I just want to entirely focus on this very long spiritual path of going from delusion to wisdom, from suffering to the freedom from suffering. And it's a long path. And it doesn't matter it's long, provided you sense of you're in the right direction. People who go on foot around the world, you know, they, they know it's going to be a long journey. But as long as you don't lose your path, then you don't fall into exhaustion and despair because every step is meaningful. If you get lost... Then why should you go here or there, or front or back? You don't know if it's taking you further away or closer. And then you feel the exhaustion. You feel the despair. You're completely disoriented. And then you have no purpose. And then that's terrible. But if you have a sense of direction, even the path is very long. I still consider myself as a beginner. I'm not pretending to be uh, modest for no reason. I know. Because I know having met some great teachers, you know, it's like a you know, rabbit compared to the jump of a tiger. So there's no comparison that we say like the earth and the sky. But still, I feel I'm in that direction. And that's why I'm so fulfilled about that.
0: That's amazing the way you say it, because I feel like a pissing fly compared to the rabbit when you say it that way. This conversation has not even started. Join us next Sunday as we discuss how to cultivate a healthy mind that enables you to feel a true sense of compassion, and handle all of the conflicting emotions that arise within us. We will talk about a true analytical view of how our world is shaping up. Is it getting better? Or is this really one of the worst parts of human history? We will talk about a true understanding of meditation, and I will share with you one of my very personal secrets. My current stage on my path to my own happiness and spirituality. Before you leave this podcast, please click on a five star and tell the whole world that you like this conversation. This is a very simple action on your side that would lead us to telling a lot more people that they can focus on their happiness and find the path to true happiness inside. Share it on social media, tell your friends about it and teach everyone what you've learned from Matthew today. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again on Sunday. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for MoGaudet, Slowmo, Slow Mo, Solve for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time
1: to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.